You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. This week's guest is one of our very special guests, simply because of the foundation that he has started, uh, and we will get to that in just a moment. But after graduating from West Point, he spent 13 years on active duty, including three deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Not only that, he founded RWB, Red, White, and Blue, the organization that helps support wounded veterans all across the country. He is Mike Irwin on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Mike, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Really honored to be here and excited to, to talk. Listen, the organization is fantastic. There, there is no doubt about it. I myself have signed up. I have my Eagle shirt. Uh, we will get into all of that coming up later on. And a lot of people may have seen the, the, the red shirt with the, with the Eagle wings on it, RWB, as it's more commonly known. But before we get to RWB, tell us how your military career got started. Absolutely. So, you know, I started, neither of my parents went to college. Um, they were both police officers. My mom was actually the first woman police officer on the Syracuse Police Department back in 1974. And uh, when it came time to go to college, you know, at the last minute um, in my sophomore year, I started to look at West Point. And it was about a four-hour drive from, from Syracuse, New York, where I was from. And came down here, and, and that's actually where I'm talking to you from today. It's uh, just this beautiful place. sits on the Hudson River, and I was enthralled by what I learned and what I saw. And uh, I knew that I had to at least give it a shot and try to get in. Um, and once I got in, then I knew that I had to go and at least give it a shot. And, you know, it obviously transformed my life. September 11th was uh, happened at the start of my senior year, so I was planning on just doing five years in the military that I would owe and move on. But 9/11 took place, and I branched military intelligence, and I uh, went on to obviously have a very different military career than I would have, you know, say uh, 10 years prior. So um, I went to Fort Hood, Texas, and then I went to Third Special Forces Group in Fort Bragg, where I was an intelligence officer in support of infantry and SF units, and uh, and yeah, so that was the journey that, that brought me from you know, a kid from Syracuse, New York, to joining the military, to then staying, even when I didn't expect that I would be there that long. Go back to the day that 9-11 happened when you were at West Point. I mean, it's a, it's a normal day. You're going through your normal um, cadet kind of rigmarole, if you will, and it, it all happens. What were your professors, who were obviously coincidentally, for those who don't know, they're all military people as well, too. They've all been serving for years, and a lot of majors and lieutenant colonels who are teachers there at West Point, you know, the, the towers are falling, the world is changing, and what are they telling you? Oh, it was, it was incredible. And the scary thing is it feels like it was just yesterday. Yeah, I'm literally right here on the grounds of West Point, where I was when I learned you know, about the attacks. And actually, the night before, September 10th, I was down in New York City. Uh, I played baseball here at West Point, and I was down there to watch the New York Yankees play the night before. And um, it was just, I remember crossing over the GW Bridge, George Washington Bridge, at around 9 o'clock at night, seeing the Twin Towers, you know, way down at the end of Manhattan in the distance. And just remember thinking to myself, just what a, what an amazing city this is. And so, you know, just, you know, less than 10 hours later to, to hear about the attacks, my brother was actually a cadet at West Point, same time as me. Uh, and he called me uh, when it happened and said, hey, turn on the news. Um, you know, the whole place was in an immediate state of panic um, just because of how close they were to New York City, 40 miles away, uh, 40 miles north on the Hudson River. And so there was an immediate, you know, threat concern of like, geez, what might be happening here? We're a target ourselves because we've got 4,000 future Army officers in one location. And then there became just the realization 
that this was a terrorist attack and that it was going to really change the trajectory of our careers. So um, there was, a, as you might imagine, a ton of uh, nervous energy around here. Uh, and again, just feels like it was yesterday in many ways. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up in Long Island, as many people on the podcast have heard me talk about. And I just I remember 9-11 myself, too. And I never remember thinking that, oh, my God, we're going to war. And maybe it's just because I was so worried about family and friends and everybody I knew who was in Manhattan and that day. But was that the thought process? Was that what professors were telling you? Guys, we're going to war. Like, and what was that like hearing it? Yeah, it actually was. And I'll never forget the first person who really made it clear to us that that was happening was general retired Barry McCaffrey. I had him as one of my professors and he had already kind of said, Hey, well, not only are we going to figure out like where this came from and, and, you know, there, but there's also immediately he knew that there was going to be some sort of effect with Iraq because of the fact that, you know, the, the problems from the middle East, the instability and how much Saddam had been uh, essentially, you know, refuting the world and the United Nations and all that. So we, we heard from some of our professors really long before we were even hearing it from the mainstream media that this was such an egregious attack that we would undoubtedly, as we commissioned in the coming years, be lieutenants serving in combat. Um, and, and, of course, we believed it immediately um, just because we were hearing it from some of our professors. And, uh, and yeah, it definitely was, uh, as you might imagine, from just a few days earlier, thinking that the most dangerous assignment we might have would be Korea. You know, or maybe Bosnia, Kosovo, to now thinking about the unknowns of what combat might look like in the Middle East. So it was definitely uh, grabbed everybody's attention anytime any professor would talk about it. You know, when you're at West Point, there's a whole lot of testosterone running around. It's just the nature of the beast. And we see all these war movies where guys find out, a unit finds out that they're going, and they all jump up and scream, and it's like, yeah, this is great, and they get all excited. Was anybody expressing those kind of emotions on that day? No, definitely not. Yeah, I mean, it was very somber. We had a few of our, a few cadets who lost a brother or lost a father because, you know, the Pentagon was attacked, as we know, uh, and, and that. So we had some classmates here who lost very close family members or friends and, and people like you who were living, you know, in, and had family in Long Island or in New York City. So very much it was somber and reflective for uh, a while. I'd say that attitude and that mindset of like, hey, I'm ready to go. Like, I want to go do my part and I want to, you know, I want to help, you know, to bring justice to people who did this to our country. You know, those those feelings started to emerge a couple of weeks later. Um, but it took a little while, certainly, for the shock and also the sadness, uh, you know, with those, you know, that we were classmates with, you know, before those feelings, I think, started to set in. Well, my next question was, what was it like at graduation then? Were people exp- expressing the hype of, yeah, we're going to war kind of deal? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, we, you know, we had that year, we, we had we had President Bush, um, who was our commencement speaker, and he sort of laid out the case for why, you know, we needed to bring more of a military effort to the Middle East, you know, in the coming years. And, and he kind of explained, you know, in his thought process and the cabinet's thought process was that, you know, the conditions in the Middle East had set the stage for the breeding and the growth of Al-Qaeda. And he laid that out. And, you know, really prior to that, when cadets came time to select their branches, Typically, you know, before 2001, the infantry branch at West Point was one of the last branches to, to, you know, to be filled. It was, you know, one of the ones where some of the lowest ranking cadets would go. Yep. Uh, after 9-11, it became such a popular branch that West Point uh, had to go reach out to the Army and request, I believe, an additional like 80 or 90 slots to make sure that every graduate, there was many graduating officers that had infantry as their first choice. 
were commissioned as infantry officers. So huh. um, there was definitely a, a very uh, strong desire for a lot of graduates to serve and to be on the front line. Yeah, for those who don't know, when the Army goes through its whole sessions process, the three ways you get commissioned. You can go through West Point, you can go through ROTC, or you can go through OCS, Officer Commissioning uh, School, and, and get it that way. But the West Point cadets always get their first choice because you guys are, you know, supposed to be the cream of the crop, and I say that as an ROTC guy defending the rest of the ROTC fellows yeah. out there. <laughs> but so I, I think that's Absolutely. interesting to know that they actually they, they went to that length to get all the West Point uh West Point guys, infantry slots. Now, for those listening as well, it's not like you graduated from West Point, war's already started, and they send you right off because there's a whole bunch of schooling and everything you have to go through. So a lot of time has elapsed. Now, it's June of 2002 or May of 2002, whatever it was, when you actually graduated, got commissioned. Um, at that point in time, you have to go to your basic course and so on and so forth. So when do you actually get to a unit that's going downrange? Yeah, it's close to, for infantry, because they go to ranger school and all that, it's close to a year. It's about 10 months. So we graduated on June 1st, 2002, and some of those lieutenants were showing up in March and April to their units. Um, now, I, because I, w- I was an intelligence officer, I showed up in November of 2002. So I was showing up, you know, about five months after graduation because my training process was shorter than it was for infantry officers who, again, showed up in the spring of 2003 just in time for the, the beginnings of the invasion of Iraq. Just out of curiosity, why military intelligence? Was that what you always wanted to do? No. You know, I, I, a, lot, a lot of me wanted to do artillery, but I ended up going intelligence because of what transpired and what I was learning about in classes at West Point, and that essentially that we knew that this was, to some extent, a, an intelligence failure, um, and that in many ways in the coming years, the missions were going to really require effective intelligence to yeah. be able to be successful. And so I wanted to really be a part you know, of helping to analyze and to collect the intelligence to help to make sure that we were you know, making the right calls, making the right decisions uh, on the battlefield. It's pretty incredible foresight when you think about it. I mean, just because for somebody who deployed, you know, I never realized how much the intelligence needed, you know, work and refining. I mean, it, was, it was a t- constant 24-hour mission that never let up for the entire time there and uh, everything military intelligence folks did uh, was so critical to our success because we don't have people to go capture we don't have bad guys to go get unless we have the intelligence on where they are and what they're doing so it's a it's a huge part of the Absolutely. effort that, that made us successful so when you finally get to your unit uh, your first duty station where is it what are you told what are your expectations yes yeah, so i showed up in november of 2002 to fort hood texas I was an infantry battalion intelligence officer, uh, and you know we really thought that well, with the, we knew that the invasion of Iraq was coming sometime soon, and we thought that we'd be a part of it. Um, but when Turkey changed the plans and they told the 4th Infantry Division that they could not come in from the north, that then canceled our deployment orders. Uh, so we ended up not deploying. I deployed on St. Patrick's Day of 2004, so I spent about 16 months in the States watching a lot of my friends deploy a lot of my friends in those early days, you know, when the violence wasn't too bad relative to what it became. Right. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, again, we just spent time training and getting ready to go. And again, deployed on St. Patrick's day, 2004. And then we ended up pushing uh, to camp Taji just North of Baghdad. Yep. And, uh, you know, and that's really when the insurgency really started to take off was the spring of 2004. You had that Iranian influence pushing in, you had, uh, some of the Saddam loyalists getting to a point where they were really um, starting to get good and unload their stockpiles and caches of ammunition that they had hidden. 
and uh, it became a pretty violent place just as we were getting into theater, uh, all the roads in and around Baghdad, then also the indirect fire that we started to, to take on a lot of our bases. Uh, I mean, on our base alone, I think we had nine killed in action in April and May of 2004 from indirect fire alone. Wow. So, um, you know, we, we got there and it was pretty hot um, from the time we got there on the ground to, you know, uh, you know, throughout our entire rotation as the insurgency was starting to pick up steam and confidence and momentum. You know, it's interesting. You're one of the first people that we've talked to. Usually a lot of the guys that we talk to are guys who are out there kicking down doors, pulling triggers, and, and putting handcuffs on bad guys. I assume as an MI guy that wasn't your main role. Most of your, your, your work was done uh, behind a desk unless you were doing human intelligence. Right, behind Absolutely. a computer. Unless you were doing human intelligence, which you were on the ground. So forgive me for not knowing the nitty-gritty of, of everything, but you said as you were behind a computer – what is that view like of combat? Because, I mean, I have a firsthand yeah. experience view of combat when bullets are flying. I, I don't have a view of, it's a 30,000-foot view, but it's also a lot closer than that. I guess you get them both. Sure. Yeah, so I'd say, you know, so I did do some human um, intelligence and reporting with meeting informants who would come in and, and talk about what was going on. So I did do some of that. I did occasionally get out on patrols with some of our units, one to showed that I wanted to be out there sharing some of, of the risks that they were experiencing every day. And so I went about every three weeks or so, I would go out on patrol. But ultimately, majority of my time was spent behind a laptop where I was analyzing reports and thinking hard about what the insurgency was doing and what I thought that they were going to do next. You know, the job of an intelligence officer at the tactical level is to predict what the insurgency or the enemy is going to do next, to predict where they're going to attack, where they're going to store their weapons and ammunition, where they're going to meet. And a lot of that you can only do through the combination of reporting and thinking hard about where do you think, based on the knowledge that you have, that they're going to meet, that they're going to go to, that they're going to attack. And so, you know, while I was not obviously being shot at and not being blown up, uh, certainly I knew all the people who were, and that made it very personal to me. And beyond that was the fact that I was uh, ultimately personally responsible, you know, for, you know, the successes and the failures that a lot of our guys had, at least I felt that way because you know, I was the one giving them information about the route. And, hey, I think that you might want to be very careful when you get to this culvert or when you get to this location on Route Tampa or when you get near this village, expect you know, some potential uh, you know, small arms fire from the south side of the road or whatever it was. It was ultimately you know, something that I felt responsible. But if I had not prepared them to expect it and it happened, I felt that you know, I had fallen short on my duties. So because of that, you know, that is, it is a different experience, certainly of combat than being on the ground. And in many ways, it's more psychologically gut-wrenching when, you know, you make mistakes knowing that you're not on the ground. That's interesting because that's kind of where I was going next. Um, and oh, by the way, good old Route Tampa. For those listening, Route Tampa was like, for, for those on the East Coast, it's I-95 going through Baghdad. Um, and for those on the West Coast, it would be I-5. But uh, it was the main road that ran all the way from down the border to Kuwait, all the way up to Mosul in the north and the border on, uh, on Iran and Syria. Anyway, but what was it like for you making the decision to tell a unit, an infantry unit, an SF unit, whatever it is, this is the guy you have to go get and this is where he is? How much information went into that and how hard sometimes was, it, was that decision to make? Yeah, very difficult because, you know, for us, um, you know, when I was, and this is different when I was in Afghanistan, when I was, you know, serving and supporting uh, Green Berets, I had access to a lot more intelligence there in that role. 
but when I was in Iraq in 04 and 05, I had much less information. I saw a much more tactical picture. And so there was very little that I was extremely confident in. And so a lot of times when I made decisions and recommendations about, hey, this is the village or this is the house that you need to hit in the village because this is where we believe the ammunition is being stored that is firing mortars and rockets on our base and killing people and disrupting our aircraft. I, you know, it was never like very, very clear. You know, it was something that there was a whole bunch of ambiguity. And, you know, I, I kind of liken being an intelligence officer to like baseball. If you are right 30% of the time, you know, you're doing pretty well. Uh, and, and that obviously doesn't change the fact that when you're wrong, that, you know, it's not that you got out, but that, you know, perhaps people have been killed. So it's a very, very different feeling. Um, and uh, I would say that, you know, it's one that comes with you know a lot of pressure that I certainly put on myself as an intelligence officer to you know to do my best and to make sure that I made that when those you know our units left the base and they went on patrol that they had access to what I believe to be the most thoroughly thought through assessment of where they were going. Was there a decision that you can recall that you made that went wrong that you still carry with you? Oh yeah. For sure. I mean, so it, I mean, the the big ones are certainly in Afghanistan. Um, you know, there's some assessments that I made there about some particular villages that I assessed to be rather peaceful when they, when they turned out not to be. Um, you know, and you know, when it was in Iraq, you know, I uh, you know I think that the biggest you know threats were when we went down and we fought in the battle of Najaf in August of 2004, and we supported the Marines. You know, there was a couple of locations where. Um, you know, we were taking consistent fire from that, uh, you know, that some of our you know, vehicles got pinned down a lot where, you know, I was completely not expecting some of those locations. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's, uh, you know, majority of the places where our troops were either killed or wounded were places where we knew going in that, that those were difficult locations to be. Um, but certainly anytime, you know, someone was wounded or killed, it was something that still sticks with you to this day. Did anybody ever come up to him and be like, how, how did you miss that? How did you not know that? Or did they just all, you know, reconcile the fact that, you know, it, it's combat and so you can't plan for everything? Yeah, for the most part, because I had great relationships with our platoon leaders and our company commanders and SF team leaders that, you know, they understood that, you know, it's a volatile, asymmetric battlefield. And because of that, inherently it's complex and difficult to be able to predict with great clarity. Um, so no, I never got that from anybody either in email or in person. Uh, you know, I think that was probably something I put more on myself. Um, but ultimately no, because I understood the fact is that it's an asymmetric uh, battlefield. So, and just for clarification, it's not like you're, it's based off the decision is based off of the intelligence that you have alone. You work with a team of people right. who all provide you with that. So then the question trickles down. Did you ever say to anybody on your staff, how did you miss that? You know, we just lost guys because this was your sector, your area, and you didn't get it right. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there was probably some times when, when I thought that, um, but I, ne I never verbalized it. And at the end of the day, as the leader, you're ultimately the one responsible. So even if, you know, there were some instances when some of my analysts missed some data or missed some input, uh, at the end of the day, I'm still the one who is responsible. Uh, and you know, I never really think it's effective leadership to outsource failure. And uh, for me, that, you know, that meant owning the blame and owning the failures or the shortcomings, even though um, certainly 
you know, maybe I wasn't being held accountable from it by you know, the guys on the ground because they understood. I still felt it and put that pressure on myself. So you get out of Iraq, um, and then how long is it before you get to your first deployment in Afghanistan? So I got to back home to Texas. I was home for about eight months, went to my advanced course in Arizona for six months, and I got on the ground in late June of 2006 in Fort Bragg, and I was gone six weeks later. So early August of 2006 is when I pushed out to a very different way. It was a three-week journey when I was with the conventional forces. This time here, we flew directly on a C-17 from Fort Bragg to Germany, Germany right into Kandahar. Isn't that and beautiful? So less than 24. Yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> less than 24 hours. You know, less than 24 hours later, I was in Kandahar in theater doing intel work to prepare our, our units, and uh, that was a very big difference. But yeah, so I was there from August until August 06 to April of 07. And, and that was uh, quite the deployment uh, where I immediately had to establish rapport and credibility with Green Berets, you know, who were seasoned, you know, battle-hardened. They'd been to Afghanistan several times, you know, most of them by now, and to try to help them to understand the lay of the land and how the insurgency was changing in southern Afghanistan with, you know, Mullah Daduba Lang taking a larger leadership presence and inspiring the Taliban to fight harder and, uh, and, and emptying the madrasas in Pakistan and pushing reinforcements in. And a lot of things has changed about the nature of the insurgency, the willingness to use a lot more suicide vehicle-borne IEDs and uh, using more tactics that they saw were being successful in Iraq with the roadside bombs. So that the complexity of the insurgency changed significantly in Afghanistan between 04 and 06. And so my knowledge and my experience in, Af- in Iraq actually helped me to better understand Afghanistan um, in many ways. And it's interesting. We we have that in common. My, my first deployment also, I was I was attached to a fifth and tenth special forces group. I was there for you know three different uh, battalions through the SF because I was there for like almost fifteen months. And those guys rotate out at every seven or eight months. But it's an entirely yep. different world. Uh, it's an entirely different level of pressure. It's an entirely different level of professionalism uh, and competency from the people that you work with who demand the very best out of everybody. Um, and, and most people who aren't tabbed, who get brought into that environment, it's sink or swim very quickly. Uh, and if, yep. you, if you swim, Absolutely. If, if you swim, they'll ask you to swim in deeper, harder, more turbulent waters. If you sink, they'll just leave you. And, and, and I don't say that yep. in a pejorative way. It's just it's their focus is so laser refined um, that they, they don't have time to to work with people and train them. They expect everybody to be at a certain level. I digress, but it just, yep. uh, you know, we share that kind of a, totally. that, that, that understanding exactly of walking into that environment. So that being said, one of the things, I never deployed to Afghanistan. I, I did Iraq twice. So I, one of the things I'm always curious about when I talk to folks in Afghanistan uh, who have been to both Afghanistan and Iraq, what were the biggest challenges uh, what was different? What stood out to you that was like, because some people would tell you it was almost like a, an entirely different war. Yep. Yeah, it was at times, I think, and, and other times it was very similar. But it, at the end of the day, it was always different because of the terrain. Iraq was a largely developed nation that was flat, that had a lot of roads, that had a lot of infrastructure, and Afghanistan mm-hmm. was very primitive, very mountainous, a very a lot of desert, you know, not a lot of roads, not a lot of hospitals or schools and, and all kinds of things like that. So very much more a third-world nation in Afghanistan, which – meant then you know the people there had a different educational background they were much more rural and farm and agricultural based um so you know what you saw in afghanistan was you know you're really driven by the biggest difference in the insurgency was driven by the terrain and how the terrain channeled 
the insurgency's capacity to fight in the winter when it was really uh, cold out. You know, a lot of times the fighters pushed down from, you know, further south or into Pakistan, so they didn't want to fight in the colder weather, so you had different fighting seasons. So there was a lot of differences that were really driven by the terrain. Uh, and then ultimately, you know, the biggest thing in terms of the insurgency was the leadership and how difficult it was to organize, whereas in Iraq they had very sophisticated ways of talking and coming together in, in Afghanistan. You know, initially it was much more primitive, but because they had a lot more, a lot of their leaders had seen a lot more combat over the years, and they were a lot more battle-hardened, and therefore they were able to, you know, still be very effective without all the technology and without all, you know, the effective uh, meetings in, in shuras that you would often see in Iraq. It was made easier because it was a developed nation. When you say the leaders, you're talking about the enemy combatant leadership, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the leaders, you know, the, the district commanders and, you know, Mullah Omar and Dadullah Lang and lots of the various leaders that were out there, you know, again, they had to be very secretive in terms of how they met because they just didn't have the access to all the technology, you know, to be able to come together like we often saw in the insurgency with Al-Qaeda Iraq. What was it like going after high-value targets? Like, how long was that process uh, and what was it like when you made the decision that, you know, here's a here's a HVT, as they call it, a high value target, a guy that you're going to go after and you feel like you have enough good information uh, and you send the unit out there. What's going through your mind as this whole thing is unfolding? Yeah, well, the way, especially in terms of being a special forces battalion, uh, S2 works is a big part of it is bottom up. So a lot of times the HVT uh, process of going after high value targets is often driven by their local reporting. So in many ways, they're the ones who know who they need to go after because they're the ones living there in that village or at that base. And so many times what we would just do is we corroborated and said, yeah, we can confirm that like there's definitely meetings taking place in this area based on our reporting that we're getting down here. But you guys know better than us because they're the ones who live in that area. And that's one of the great things about special forces that they're working. They work so well with the indigenous people and the indigenous forces. So, you know, with that, um, you know, it was really driven from the ground up, and we re refined it and confirmed it before, you know, the battalion commander would then approve the assets and say go. But ultimately, they're the ones who typically made the decisions and made the strong recommendations on, you know, making the, uh, making the call about who to go after because they knew who they needed to go after and why. Because they were, you know, they needed to save their own lives, you know, um, by going after some of those high-value targets. When your guys went on a raid, we see so much in movies that, like, you know, there's a way for you to watch or keep up with it and listen in on the radio. Did you ever have that experience, and what was it like? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the biggest thing was in Afghanistan in uh, what was called Operation Medusa in uh, August of 2006. You know, it was not just a raid. It was a series, uh, you know, of major movements to contact to, you know, to really free you know, uh, a couple of key areas outside of Kandahar City. So, um, you know, I was, you know, listening in on the radio the entire time. Um, and uh, and then in some cases, I actually went out there and flew out there with the battalion commander on the ground. And I, you know, was there and, and I actually was there next to the JTAC that they were calling in uh, Spectre gunfire that night. Oh, wow. You know, taking out targets that were, um, you know, that were, that I had identified through a lot of reporting that were locations where they were reinforcing because they wanted to make sure they maintain control of that terrain, which is very valuable to the Taliban. So, yeah, so it was one of those things where we really, 
you know, to be able to experience it that close for me was a game changing moment because it gave me the experience of realizing what those guys are going through and just how important it was that they were able to isolate and, you know, to attrit the enemy forces when they were massing like they were. You mentioned earlier about a, a call in Afghanistan that you had gotten wrong or it didn't go well. What was, what was that specific instance you were talking about? Yeah, so up in the Aruzgan province in, uh, you know, in February of 2000, and uh, that was on the next deployment, on February 2009, um, you know, there was a couple of villages up there that seemed like there was very little enemy activity, but it was quiet. Uh, and when we got there, you know, there was a couple of big attacks, you know, um, small arms fire, very accurate sniper fire. Um, that killed one of uh, our soldiers, uh, and then there was a big IED attack that killed four, uh, well, three of our soldiers and our interpreter and, and wounded another soldier uh, from the unit. So they were from the same location within like eight days or nine days apart, um, and there was really no, you know, very limited in indication from what I saw from the reporting that the enemy was consolidating power that far north into Aruzgan, but they turns out they were, and they were very effective you know, with their, you know, their IEDs and with their small arms. So what was that like for you? I mean, what was it like trying to go to sleep that night? Yeah, you know, that was really tough, you know, because I had thought, you know, for sure that there was not a lot of uh, potential that the enemy was going to be very strong there. And, and obviously, you know, when you, know, you lose soldiers from your unit, let alone, you know, four of them within, uh, you know, an eight-day period, this is early in the deployment, too. This is like, you know, five weeks into the deployment. Um you know, and typically this is not the fighting season. The fighting season that far north in Aruzgan usually is April after the poppy grows. And um, for it to have taken place in middle of February was really alarming. And obviously, you know, it hit our whole unit hard, but certainly hit me really hard. Um, you know, and uh, the story actually, you know, goes is that team leader for that unit is actually the first, the first, became the first employee and the executive director for Team Red, White, and Blue, Blaine Smith, you know, who really led our organization, um, you know, starting in 2013, um, you know, for five years. And, um, you know, he was that team leader on the ground, you know, who did uh, an incredible job, um, you know, given the situation and, and the circumstances that he found himself in. But, you know, that was, that was definitely tough. And it's still, and him and I talked about, it, you know, years later, that it was still something that was tough for me to process, knowing that, you know, I had kind of painted a rather, you know, non-threatening picture of where they were going and certainly wish that I had been a little more paranoid you know, about why it was so quiet and actually that it was quiet because they were planning. Is it fair to characterize it as regret? Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's, that's fair. Um, you know, when you, when you think about, you know, like how you define regret, um, you know, that I wish I had done it differently. So yeah, I think so. Um, you know, and again, even all these years later, um, you know, you, you always, sort of second guess yourself and wonder what could you've done differently or, you know, and what, you know, what would, what difference would it have made if I had painted a different picture? Um, you know, and, and I don't know, and you no, know, nor will I ever know, but certainly, you know, there's obviously those emotions of regret that I, you know, that I still have. And, and I think that most people who you know, have ever been responsible in one way, shape or form for the loss of someone's life, they, that feeling sort of never, ever truly fades, um, you know, over time. All right, so your deployment cycle ends. You, you do three of them, and you come up with this idea for Team RWB. How does that whole thing happen? So when I came out of Afghanistan in July of 2009, I immediately transitioned to Ann Arbor, Michigan, 
you know, a, a state with no active duty military bases. <laughs> and uh, I was, I, I was a, comp- a fish out of water for sure. Um, you know, I was going through graduate school with people who had very different life experiences and very different thoughts and opinions than I did. And, you know, uh, there just wasn't much of a military presence there. And so I, you know, I, I certainly struggled myself. And I thought through various ways that I could, you know, try to give back and try to serve because, you know, staying busy at least gave me something, you know, that I felt like I was making a positive difference. And, you know, I really didn't find any ways to connect with veterans, you know, especially those who were post 9-11 veterans, you know, in Ann Arbor. Um, and so you know, I went out one day, I went to the VA hospital and just sort of said, hey, I'm kind of kicked around this idea of, you know, starting a nonprofit. We might run and do triathlons and CrossFit and use those events to raise money to support veterans. What would that look like? Is there a need? Is there an unmet need? And so I met with the counselor, a woman named Jennifer Lohr, who um, was the counselor for all the post 9-11 vets from, you know, the area of Michigan that were coming down to her VA hospital. And she said, hey, you know what they really need? Veterans really need just someone to have coffee with, someone to talk to. You know, a lot of times they come back and they don't feel like anyone knows them. And because of that, they just really struggle to get to meet new people. And so the initial idea of Team Red, White, and Blue was, hey, we're going to do physical activity to raise money and raise awareness to support wounded veterans. And and then what we're going to do is we're going to try to connect with veterans through the VA hospital who are struggling and try to build relationships with them. And so the initial idea of Team Red, White, and Blue is that we were going to try to partner with 10 wounded veterans per year and build relationships with them. And, and that was the initial idea. Um, and, you know, really, you know, that's, that morphed, you know, that morphed over the next year um, where the focus really became, um, you know, to, to now actually use um, the, the, the fitness that we were using to raise money and raise awareness to use those, that physical fitness actually as the vehicle to help veterans, you know, to connect with other, with other people from the community. And so it wasn't, it no longer became just about wounded veterans, it no longer became you know, about uh, partnering with 10 wounded veterans per year, but it really became about building communities across America where veterans would have a chance to connect with other veterans, whether or not they identified as being wounded or as having PTSD or not. Um, and then not only to connect with them, but then also to, you know, to connect with other you know, fellow veterans and also, you know, with civilians in their community. And turns out it was a really powerful idea because a lot of veterans were looking for that. Um, and they were also looking for a way to stay physically active. Uh, and so in many ways, you know, Team Broadway and Blue is known as being, you know, the PT guys. You know, we're, we're the physical fitness group, and we're the ones who encourage veterans to run and to CrossFit and do yoga. But really, at the end of the day, what Team Broadway and Blue is about is we're about forging relationships and helping veterans to meet new people in their community. Um, and it just so happens to be that we do that very effectively through physical fitness. Because as you know from the military, when you have shared hardship together, that is the psychological proving ground for building good relationships with people. Because you have to encourage each other. you got to encourage one another to stick with it. You have to support each other. You know, and that's what we found in Team Red, White, and Blue is what started out as, hey, let's run and do fitness to raise money. It actually became the vehicle that we used to help veterans you know, to connect with each other and to connect with other people on top of being physically active and physically healthy. So in many ways, people who go and get involved in Team Red and Blue, it's a, it's a real win-win situation. They're getting physically more healthy, but they're also getting, um, you know, the opportunity to, to grow their relationships in their community. 
You know, we've had a bunch of different people who have started veterans groups on the podcast. You know, Paul Rykoff from IAVA, Jason Van Camp from Mission 6-0. Uh, so th- there are a lot of veterans organizations out there. One of the things I think that's unique about RWB that other veterans organizations don't have is that you allow non-vets to take part in these events. It's yep. that, that you totally. are actually welcoming in anybody. Because people are always asking, well, how do I help out vets? How do I help out vets? Well, you can sign up for RWB if you're not a vet. You can get your T-shirt, and you can go run with a vet and go have coffee with a vet and, and you know, just, just sit down and talk to a vet. Absolutely. Because, as you just said before, that's what a lot of us need. But th- th- was that something that was initially part of the design or it just morphed into that? Yes. Yes, and that's because that, that, that VA counselor, Jennifer Lore, said, look, you know, it doesn't need to be another veteran. It can be somebody who just wants to sit down, have a cup of coffee, or talk and share that experience. And then if you start thinking about it, you know, so there's 22 million living veterans. Well, then there's also spouses, and then there's children. And then think of all the people who are directly related and or know, you know somebody who has served. And when you started thinking about it, it's like, why are we closing out the opportunity for them to make a difference in a veteran's life? Uh, and we know that, you know, all it takes sometimes is just one positive relationship in a person's life that can really turn it around. And so, you know, our mindset is, you know, veterans don't get out of the military and go live in a commune. They get out of the military and they interact with other people who have served and who have not served. Right. And I think it's really dangerous to sit there and for veterans to think that, the only people who can understand their experiences are other veterans. So while no doubt, like there's something unique about combat, and there's something unique about, you know, the, the the trauma that you know a lot of people have experienced. There's also lots of other people who've experienced other, you know, trauma and other tremendous adversity in their life, whether it's the loss of family members, car accidents, abuse. Um, there's a lot of people out there who you might not understand exactly what veterans are going through, but they can understand and they're willing to, and even if they have never been through anything traumatic in their life, they can lend an ear and they can be supportive and be there to lift uh, somebody up. And so that's really been since the very beginning has been part of our mindset is how can we help people? How can we help veterans by not just connecting them to other veterans, but to anybody who wants to be supportive of them and who wants to be someone to listen to them and to share their story. You've got over 42,000 members right now, or it may even be bigger than that. At least that's the last count I saw when looking online. But, uh, I mean, how does this continue to grow for you guys? Yeah. So, yeah, so right now we're 238 chapters and 127,000 members strong. Yeah, that was way um, off. <laughs> we are – yeah, so, no, it's good. So, yeah, that's good. I'm glad that the, the growth has been that high. It's just been tremendous. It's been very steady. Um, you know, and we really, you know, we've built a solid business plan. Our staff has done a great job at, at implementing that plan with discipline. We have built some great partnerships with foundations, uh, you know, like the Bernie Marcus Foundation, Howard Schultz Foundation, uh, the Ron Conway Foundation, but then also companies, you know, like Microsoft and Walmart and Nike. So we, we built, you know, some partnerships with some of the biggest brands and the biggest foundations that exist out there. And they really get what we're doing. And they see that we're not just helping veterans be more physically active. We're helping them to be more uh, connected and we're helping them to, to achieve better mental health. And we're reducing suicide and we're improving, you know, just so many. We're having all these various effects on the veteran community wherever we're at. And funders are really saying, wow, like, I get it. And this is also sustainable because we don't you know, have a lot of overhead. Um, we've got 32 full time staff right now. Um, but, you know, we really work to be as lean of an organization as we can because relationships and PT is free. You know, right, um, yeah. getting, it's really it's, it's an effort to get people to commit their time and to say, hey, I'll go for a run with you or I'll go to the gym with you. 
Um, but what we do doesn't really cost money. It's just the, all the you know, it's all the administration and everything that you know requires staff to to be able to pull it all together to make it you know, to make it legal and to make it as effective as possible. Um, but ultimately, you know what we've got is uh, I don't want to say we're infinitely scalable, but you know um, as long as the funding is there and we can continue to to grow and, and manage our growth effectively, like you know we should become you know at some point in the next ten to fifteen years you know a million members strong and you know and be in every population center of a hundred thousand people or more. You know I think that's over like six hundred and fifty places across America right now. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be in all those locations and why. You know, we shouldn't, you know, be at least a million members, you know, in that, you know, whatever, 10, 12, 15 years from now. That's amazing. It's just the growth is unreal. I wish you guys nothing but the best. You know, I've asked this question to other veterans organizations, folks, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. Since I've started this podcast, and as I said, I've run into different people who all have a veterans organization. And I begin to wonder, even this podcast, to a certain extent, you know, is a veterans organization, if you will, in, in its own form. But I've always wondered, like, we're all after the same piece of the pie, and we're all kind of going for the same goal. And part of me feels like if we all just kind of join forces, almost like a Voltron. Like, remember Voltron growing up? If we all just joined oh, yeah. together, we would be a much stronger or one huge veterans organization that we could all benefit from. I always wondered why that th- those discussions aren't happening, but is that something you think that sounds too crazy, or what's the reason for all the yeah. different groups? No, I think it does. I think I think the conversation, certainly the conversation has been happening over, over the past, you know, in the past five years or so. I think at the end of the day, though, it's you know that this is America, and America, different people have different passions and they have different talents, and they want to leverage those talents and passions in a way that they feel is the most effective. So you got some people out there who've got small nonprofits that bring veterans fishing and help veterans, you know, learn how to to farm. And there's people out there who you know, like Team Rubicon, that does veteran disaster response and there's all kinds of different missions, but I think that people are so eclectic and they're so different that it would be really hard to build an organization that was a one-stop shop and that, oh, well, I'll just come here and we do everything, right? You know, we, we, we you know, take you hunting. We take you, you know, you know, to learn how to farm. We take, you know, you know, I think so it's very difficult to do that. And that's just part of, I think, the freedom that sits at the bedrock of America is that people ultimately want to do um, what they're passionate about and what they think is super important, you know, for veterans. And there's no doubt it could, it could be much more efficient if we were able to pull together both the funding and the organization and the program management. Um, but I just think that, you know, that's why people start non-governmental organizations to sort of fill in those gaps that, you know, that government, uh, uh, you know, can't address effectively. So um, I do think that you'll see over the time mergers, if you will, mergers and acquisitions, you know, some nonprofits, I think a lot of them actually have started to close up shop or, you know, move their members to a different location uh, or, or encourage them to join a different, you know, organization. I think there has been more of that. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I think you're always going to see a bunch of different organizations because the world today, you know, allows people to do that, to sure. create organizations, build a Facebook page, get the word out, start doing stuff. And, and I do think, though, that you're right, ultimately, that we need to continue figuring out how to cooperate and work together as effectively as we can to achieve the greatest effect for the veteran community. So someone who wants to get involved in RWB, whether they're a vet or not, what do they do? How do they go about the process? Let everybody yeah. know. Yeah, just go to, uh, to teamrwb.org and click join the team. You can choose the local chapter nearest to you. There's a whole bunch of them. The, the list is quite long now of, of the one you can join. If there's not a chapter near you, you can still join the team. You can 
order your you know Nike made team red, white, and blue eagle shirt. Uh, you pay like five bucks for shipping, and that's it. You know, Nike's donated the shirt, so you know you get a nice shirt for free. And then we encourage people to go out there and to represent Team Red, White, and Blue with pride, and to encourage uh, people to tell other veterans, tell other people who know veterans, that they should consider joining Team Red, White, and Blue. And um, you know, so there's all kinds of ways that people can get involved, even if it's not you know in their immediate chapter or where they meet, you know, directly where they live. When you look back at RWB from where it was to where it is now, how surprised are you? I tell you, um, certainly, you know, when I think about it in the first year, I'm shocked because the vision was small. It was to, you know, just help 10 veterans, 10 wounded veterans per year. And, um, you know, over time, uh, I'm not shocked with where we've grown because, you know, after that, you know, that first year when we were thinking very small, we realized that we were on to something, that we had a strong brand, that we had a powerful idea. You know, and then we got some incredible pro bono uh, consulting support um, from the world's leading consulting firm. Uh, and they really helped us to think through how can we scale this over the next five years. And so we're in year five of that five-year business plan. And really, in many ways, you know, we have been able to apply business acumen and our strategy that was developed um, in 2012 you know, to allow us to achieve you know, what we have in terms of our growth and in terms of the veterans that we're serving. So, um, but at the end of the day, from the very beginning, it's, it's night and day. But from after we realized that we had something, you know, we've really just applied, you know, good business acumen, made the, you know, hired the right executive director who's built out a staff and hired the right people and, you know, really built the culture of the organization. And, and that's why we're continuing to grow. Mike, it's just absolutely amazing. Um, you know, RWB is a fantastic uh, organization. It's it's reaching to the every corner of the country, and you know what you've done and what you've started, and the firestorm you've created is helping veterans every single day. Uh, you know it, and I know it. And listen, I know you're still putting a uniform on uh, in a reserve capacity, so I, I continue to wish you luck and great service going forward. But most of all, you know, as, as a fellow service member and a vet, just thank you for all that you've done. And certainly thank you for being part of this podcast and, and nothing but continued success for you and RWB in the future. Well, thank you very much. That means a lot. Uh, it's been a real honor to share some thoughts about, you know, my own personal journey, but more importantly, you know, the, the journey of Team Red, White, and Blue and, and to hopefully reach more veterans, you know, through the podcast here and uh, have them join Team Red, White, and Blue and hopefully enrich their lives as we have for so many others. So I really appreciate the opportunity and and look forward to continuing to listen and and hear from more guests. Mike Irwin, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.